Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Y'all, don't shoot me. I know I missed an episode last week. I tried really hard to pull it together. I was traveling. I went out to L.A. Actually, it's somewhere deep in Southern California, right on the coast. BET brings together 200 women who are power players, shot callers, uh, women of note in their respective industries. It was started by Deborah Lee, who used to run BET. She has since stepped away and she took the event with her. This was the first year that I've gone. I've been invited a couple other years, but I was either traveling or I was just like, I BS'd on RSVPing. But this year is my, you know, get up and go get it year. Like I've been, I've been half-assing through life for a really long time. And so this year I, I decided to step it up. So one of the things that was on my step it up list was to attend this event. Also, when people invite you to things and you don't show up, they stop inviting you. And this is one of those things that I was like, oh, I'm taking for granted that I'm being invited to this and I might want to show up in case I don't get an invite next year. In best faith, I took all my podcast equipment. I took my, you know, my pop filter and I took my good mic out to California with me with the full intent that I was going to record last week's podcast and edit it and get it up on time. Everything would go without without a hitch. I just couldn't. Like as soon as I got to the hotel, we were staying at um, the Ritz-Carlton, like right on this beautiful cliff overlooking the water. As soon as I got there, I ran into one of my childhood friends and we sat down and we had lunch and we talked until it was almost time to go to the opening night reception. A who's who of black women. I walk into the room, tons of my friends from New York are there, tons of my friends from LA are there, tons of my friends from DC are there. And names, like if I ran them off, like you know them because they're notable black women. So I really just took the time to like to kiki and reconnect and enjoy. Sometimes um, being out here in the burbs, I don't get a good chance to connect with all of my my friends, even in DC, the way that I would like to. So I really just wanted to enjoy the moment and forgive me that I did. But I just had some amazing experiences at the conference that I would have been doing myself a disservice to go sit in my room and skip the events to record a podcast. I wouldn't be able to tell you about going to bed that first night and then waking up super early the next day to catch R. Kelly for that Gail King interview on CBS. And then I go to breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning and there's like two other people there. One of them is this woman who looks vaguely familiar and I can't figure out where I know her from. There was a seat open next to her because empty room. And I say, would you mind if I sat here? And she's like, no, of course, super sweet. So she was like, yeah, I've been up since four o'clock. And I was like, I got up super early too to catch the, uh, the R. Kelly interview. And she laughed. And I looked at her again and I was like, wait. And she was like, yep. The woman I was sitting next to is Kim Fox. She's the, the state's attorney, the prosecutor in the R. Kelly case from Cook County, yeah, who was on the news reading off charges like a week before. Yeah. And she didn't give up any good tea. Like, you know, obviously she's the prosecutor. So, you know, she thinks R. Kelly is guilty and she and her office are collecting as much evidence as possible. I'm sure that maniacal, insane, ill-advised Gail King interview will be part of it. We were teasing her at the table. Are you going to subpoena all the transcripts and all the people and, and all the video from all angles now? Or are you going to wait till you get back home? And she just laughed and laughed. Lovely woman. I, I truly enjoyed her. 
the second day we had breakfast, I was sitting next to Kim. And then on my left was Nina Shaw. Is that her name? She's a very well-known entertainment attorney. You can look up who her clients were. She didn't mention them by name, which I really respected. We were talking about R. Kelly's brokenness. He says that he's down to his last 350000 He obviously didn't have money to bail himself out of jail. He didn't have money to pay his child support. Other people paid it. There's some question as to whether he stashed that money with other people and then they came back and, and paid for him. So he's just trying to appear broke or he's really broke. So we had a conversation at the table about like, does he really not have the money? Because I would think that if you could avoid staying in jail for even one night, you certainly would. If I had money or I knew people who had access to my money, I'd be like, y'all need to show up at this courthouse and get me out of here because I'm not trying to spend even one night in jail. Many women at the table thought he was actually definitely broke because he's had a mismanagement of money. He's had IRS issues. I think he had to give up one of his houses. Maybe it was in Atlanta, but he's had some money troubles like long before this. Nina Shaw gave me so much insight about monetizing my social media platform, but also just money management in general, because she's worked with so many artists. She negotiates the contract, so she knows how much people have. And then she's also seen those same people go broke. So she was explaining that, you know, she doesn't really think that he may not have money because of the lawsuits. She thought that he did a very typical thing, which people tend to do, is they get a check for like 800000 and then they go and spend 800000 But she was like, a lot of people just don't have basic money management. And then they also have these large entourages where they're creating like this ecosystem around themselves because they can't do basic things like go to the grocery store. One of the things that, um, that Nina Shaw negotiates for her clients, which I thought was so fascinating. So on the red carpet... Say J-Lo shows up and J-Lo is in Versace, right? I always assumed that it was kind of like a privilege for someone to like loan you their dress or dress you for, for the event. And she was like, absolutely not. And she was like, do you know how much coverage that gets? There was also another woman at the table and I didn't catch her name, but she works in ad sales for a major media brand. And she says it's $150,000 for a magazine page, right? If... J-Lo is to wear a Versace gown on the red carpet. It's going to get all the video coverage on the red carpet. All those photographers that line the red carpet are taking pictures. So all of those images are either going to be distributed on social media or they're going into the next issue of a print magazine. So that gown is going to be seen everywhere. Everyone's going to be talking about it. It's going to be seen. People are going to dissect it, discuss it. Is it hot? Is it not? Whole nine yards. You can't pay for that level of publicity. And so I was like, well, you know, what do they pay? And so she was like, uh, I don't know, around 250000 And I was like, 250000 American USD dollars? Are you really? And she was like, yeah, like the dress is about 250000 for for the A-list artist to wear. And she was like, it's probably another $150,000 for the jewels. And she was like, and don't get me wrong. Like, she was like, it's not as simple as they just give you this. Like, you know, they give you essentially $400,000 and you just show up. She's like, you have to, you know, tweet about it and post pictures on your Instagram about it. I was like, two to three pictures on Instagram for 400000 American USD dollars? I'll gladly do that shit. Oh, you gotta be A-list. Okay, I'm working on that. I also got a chance to dance with Debbie Allen, which I didn't even know that was on my life's bucket list, but it was 
it was the conference's version of a master class. I think you could take a cooking class. You could take a class on like how to have better sex, which I really thought about signing up for that one. If you follow me on Facebook, you know that Ratchet and Respectable, the name of this podcast, was originally the name of another project that I was working on. It was a conference that I wanted to do about helping women find their joy, celebrating pleasure. It was essentially like a bachelorette weekend, but nobody was getting married. But anyway, I danced with Debbie Allen and I can actually dance. I have rhythm, but not when it comes to choreography. Knowing this, I was like, there is no way in hell I'm going to miss this once in a lifetime opportunity. So I signed up to dance with Debbie Allen. I was offbeat. I was ungraceful. I don't think I did one move to the right beat in the way that Debbie Allen did. My heart was in it and I had a big old smile on my face. Deborah Lee is is in front of me. She's doing it with far more grace than I was. Lisa Price, the founder of Carol's Daughter, is somewhere else in the room and she's kicking it. We were doing something that we like, you know, putting our knees in the air and Debbie snapped and she said, get those knees up. And I was so happy. I was like, oh my God, Debbie Allen snapped at me. I was was just over the moon. And mind you, I go to the gym six days a week. I hike up a hill at like an 11 incline at this point. I also do the Stairmaster. I push the sled. Like I lift stuff. But that workout I did with Debbie Allen, like I was like, oh my God, it feels like I've never worked out in my life. But Debbie Allen, Madame is almost in her 70th year. She looks amazing. She did the entire workout with us. Like, you know, she was telling us to get our knees up, but her knees were up and she wasn't breathless. And when it was time to stretch, I have sciatica, so it's a little different for me. But she was just stretch. I mean, she's been doing this her whole life. So I guess if you stretch every day, you're very limber. But she was just, she just was just a pretzel. And I was like, holy shit. If you take care of your body, it will take care of you. Please believe Debbie Allen is a living, breathing example of such. So whenever I feel like I want to skip a workout, I'd be like, you know what? Debbie Allen wouldn't skip a workout. I'm trying to be limber like Debbie Allen. I mean, I want to get my legs up high now. But I definitely wouldn't be able to do it at 69. Like, that's impressive. Nina Shaw also is one of the founders of the Time's Up movement. She also gave a great speech about the behind the scenes of it and making sure that um, intersectionality was a big thing. That's my code word for make sure black women were included. She she speared that. It was a great talk from Elaine Brown from the Black Panther Party. She's so intense. The same Elaine Brown, like if, if you've seen pictures or you've heard speeches from her. She's a very intense woman. She has kept that intensity. She told this amazing story about like how she became political. She was living in LA. She was the mistress to an older white man who was financing her whole life. She was from the hood, but had escaped and had no intentions of going back, wasn't thinking about nobody's hood. Some white woman, maybe lived in her building or such, was doing some volunteer work in the hood. And she knew that Elaine Brown paid the piano and she asked her if she would teach piano lessons to these little black girls from the hood because it might be good for them to have this experience. So she was like, you know, I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything with my time other than, you know, doing my hair and wearing pretty dresses and being entertained by this older white man who was very um, into Marxism. So he would talk about stuff and she would pretend to be interested because he was paying all her bills. She went to the hood to meet these girls. They reminded her of herself 
and she just had like a wake up call and she was like, these kids don't need piano lessons. They need better education. They need support for their families. They need money. They need food. They need structure. Piano lessons ain't going to help these kids. So she just had like a whole like about face very quickly and was like, I need to like, you know, get my ass in gear and actually do something with myself besides lazing around with this older white man. Between the girls and and the older white guy, it sparked something. And then she went on to, you know, research and form her own philosophies and join the Black Panther Party and, and so forth. Fascinating woman. If you ever have an opportunity to to listen to her or really to any black woman over 60 to just let them tell you their stories about like how they got to where they are, full of ratchetness and respectableness. I really enjoyed her. Beth Ann Hardison and Iman are best friends and have been such for like a good 40 years. They did a talk together. Beth Ann Hardison is a national treasure. I met her 2014. I went to an Alice Smith concert and I was at a weird time in my life. I think the um, the reality show that I was on was about to debut. I kind of knew I made like a mistake by agreeing to do it, but there's nothing I can do about it now. So I might as well go with it. And I was celebrating. I was bopping around, singing off key at the top of my lungs. And Beth Ann Hardison and her friend were sitting in front of me. And I spilled my wine on Beth Ann Hardison. And the look she gave me, she turned around and she could see in my face. Like, I meant no harm. I was just being stupid and not paying attention. I don't know if she told me to get it together or it wasn't watching my wine. But she was like, you're doing the most. You go bring it down to a 10. One, I was like, oh, my God, it's Beth Ann Hardison. But then I was like, oh, my God, I've just been shamed by Beth Ann Hardison. But I brought it down to a 10 because... It wouldn't even have to be Beth Ann Hardison. Somebody's black mom turns around and basically tells you to get yourself in order. You just get yourself in order. So I met Kadeem Hardison that night, too. He gave me great advice about um, about fame. He says it comes fast and it goes fast. And he said to enjoy it while it's there, which I didn't listen to. I didn't really enjoy, quote unquote, fame. That's a whole nother story that I could do a whole podcast about that. I'm actually a very private behind the scenes type of person to achieve at the level that I want to achieve at. It requires me not to be behind the scenes. Someday we'll dissect all of that. But Beth Ann Hardison, I ran into her at an event. I want to say, remember that own show with the four women in New York? It didn't last long. I think it only lasted a season, but they did a, a splashy launch party for it. And Beth Ann Hardison was there and she recognized me across the room and she said something about like, you know, are you spilling wine tonight? I was like, no, ma'am. But ever since then, um, we've just sort of been, I don't think she would consider me a friend. I consider her more like a mentor. I shouldn't, I don't want to say friends. I'm not, not equals per se. She always checks in with me. She, um, we follow each other on Facebook, but she was lovely and delightful on, on the panel with Iman. And they talked about how like when Iman first came to America, that there was a big splash about her. Like, oh, this African goddess from the bush. And Iman was like, I- I've never seen a bush in my life. Like, not then and not now. She's like, my father was a diplomat to Saudi Arabia. I spoke five languages. I wasn't from the bush. What are you talking about? Tina Knowles was there. She received an award. She did a, she did a sit down with Deborah Lee. She's just like she is on Instagram. Her husband... Mr. Lawson, 
Richard Lawson, introduced her. She didn't know he was there. He flew in to surprise her, which I thought was so sweet. She's not just happy. She has, like, joy. Like, genuine joy. And I always think back to, I want to say, maybe like 10 years ago. Remember we used to think Mama Tina was mean? Like, she had, like, the red lipstick, and she didn't really say much. We see her in the background, and she always, she's always just looked unhappy. It's really interesting with, like, I don't know, being in a good relationship. Or not even a good relationship. Not being in a dysfunctional relationship. What that can do for your, your inner peace, your sense of joy, and the way you show up in the world. I'm happy for her. That's the kind of glow up I'm trying to have. Like, I'm not really interested in any kind of relationship whatsoever at this point. I'm also still legally married. So that's like the proper thing to say. But yeah, like I would love to have like a Mama Tina type glow up or a Sierra and Russell. You know, I I stand for Sierra and Russell. That woman choosing better for herself makes people so mad. Oh, she's not loyal. Loyal to who for what? Okay, so this is not the podcast that I thought I was going to be giving. There's a whole list of things that I wanted to talk about. I'm just going to keep going with it. Speaking of happy, J-Lo and A-Rod announced they were engaged, which I'm over the moon about. I think they're a really cute couple. I think they're equally yoked. Like they've both been married before. I think A-Rod had one or two. This is Jenny's fourth. Now I couldn't do it. I don't have a problem with it, but just going through a divorce, this has just been the worst part of my entire life. This is just soul draining. I would never want to go through this again. So I really, people ask me, they're like, oh, would you get married again? I'm like, one, can I get divorced first? Is that all right with you? And then like this, the prospect of like it not working out again. Once you get a divorce, if you are remarried, you are much more likely to get a divorce. Like it's statistically much higher. Frankly, I just don't want to set myself up for that again. Never say never, but as of right now, like completely uninterested. But I think J-Lo and A-Rod are really cute. They have kids around the same age. They're both at the height of their respective industries. And they're seasoned. Like, they've been through some life. They've both been married before, so they know what they're getting themselves into. It doesn't seem like a, a flashy relationship. They seem comfortable. And this is totally based on, you know, just seeing them on appearances on the red carpet and occasionally the Instagram posts or such. But... They seem content and not content as in settling, but content is just like, they're good. I want people to be good. Speaking of couples, you saw Rosario Dawson announced that she's Cory Booker's boo. If you remember a couple, not like a month ago now, he went on the breakfast club and they specifically asked him like, you know, are you dating somebody? And he was like, I got a boo, which was just the weirdest thing ever for Cory Booker to say. Like, sir, that's boo is not in your lexicon. That's not your language. Stop it. People were like, who, who is this boo? Is this boo a beard? Because, you know, for a long time, people thought that, um, you know, he didn't date women. But, you know, it's Rosario Dawson. I don't know much about her. I don't know much about him. I just thought it was really interesting that this man made it until, like, what, 50-something? Late 40s, early 50s? And had to go run for president before anybody, you know, really got in his face and was like, hey, who are you dating? How are you single? Where's your woman, man? Because I feel like every woman, like the day you turn 25, people start asking you that every holiday. Where is your man? Like, oh, I just got a promotion, got a degree, bought my own car, just put a down payment on the house. Yes, yes. But do you have a man? Cory Booker made it an extra 25 years and ran for office before people got in his ass about that. I'm not saying it's right. 
I'm saying I laughed when it happened. We do women so bad sometimes. We really do. Make the center of their lives about having a man. I did this event the other day. And I was talking about like the pressure we put on women to be in relationships. And people keep asking me. And I'm like, like, is it because I'm a life coach that you think I should be paired up immediately? Or you think just because I'm a woman, I should be paired up? It comes up all the time. And I'm like, y'all know I just went through a divorce or I'm going through a divorce, either one. But I'm like, why y'all want me paired up so bad? It's weird. Like, I have no interest. Like, I'm not trying to communicate. I'm not trying to negotiate. I'm not trying to text you back. I'm not trying to be accountable. Like, I really just don't want to make room for anybody else right now. Like, I'm I'm in a really selfish phase and it feels great. I'm in a really good space for like, almost like the first time. I impact some of that too at Leading Women Defined. I had a great sit down with Lisa Nichols. Is she a life coach? She I don't know what to call her. She's like a, it's like a, an angel. She's an angel delivered to earth to help people unfuck their lives. I did a small session with her and a couple other women, maybe five or six other women. She, she put us in pairs and we were to ask our partner, who are you? And you ask it, over and over and over. And each time you go a little deeper, you ask it about 10 times. So the first one through four are very surface questions. Who are you? I'm a writer. Who are you? I'm an ex New Yorker. You know, all the ways that you sort of define yourself as shorthand that you present to other people. And then you go a little deeper and it's, who are you? I'm a person who's scared of fucking up my life again, because I've done it once and I never want to be in this position again. I'm a person who's stuck who feels stuck because of that fear i'm a person who's capable of so much more but i'm afraid of the obligations that come with it i'm a person who's capable of so much more but i'm afraid that i'll put myself in a position where no one else can relate to me again i'm a person who wants to be loved but is scared of losing everything again if I try. These are none of the answers that I gave that day. It changes day by day like the things that you're like willing to confront about yourself but that's what it is today. So you ask that question over and over and over till you get to the nitty-gritty of it and it was very intense. At the base of of everything that, you know, I said to my partner and that my partner said to me, it's all fear. And out of respect for the group, I won't name the the specific things that the other, other women said, but everyone's afraid. Everyone's so very afraid. And one of the things that I liked about Lisa, because she's asking us to do this exercise, she puts herself out there and she says, well, so I'm asking you to answer the question, who am I? But let me tell you who I am. So she ran through a few things that were that were on her list. They were heavy to her. It didn't change the way that I felt about her. I'm not here to judge you on your ish. I'm really just here to work out my ish. I'm most interested in how you can just sort of rattle these things off without fear and shame and embarrassment. Like when I was speaking with my partner, like, you know, one through four, like I was fine because that's the surface stuff. Five or six, you know, I had to clear my throat. By seven, eight, nine, like I'm reaching for tissues. I'm snatching them out the box. I can deal with my shit 
But I got to like wrestle with myself and roll around on the ground and scream to get to like the, the bottom of it. But if I could just recognize my shit, identify the shit and not having like a a breakdown around it, that would be ideal. I've learned through the process of life and because I sit around and talk to like 60 year old women all day that you're going to have some shit. Like the idea of the person with the perfect life like that, that, that seek Jesus. That's not anybody on earth. There are people who have gotten to a point where they can go through life without making grand errors like things happen and everyone makes mistakes but they can stop themselves before they run into the brick wall just teach me how to be one of those people and i'm good what else is going on in god's big world i talked about r kelly briefly interview is a shit show i feel so bad for those girls and their parents like r kelly got them all dressed up with fresh blowouts putting on grown people's clothes. They're 21 and 23. They look like little girls playing dress up. I wish to God that, and this is not proper journalism, especially not for morning TV, but I would have loved if Gail had brought their parents to set and had a confrontation between the girls and their parents. They were taping at R. Kelly's house, so that never would have happened. I wish they could have had them in studio somewhere else. So CBS had a little more control over the set, but neither here nor there. But that's like some old school Geraldo, like, or Ricky Lake. Remember Ricky Lake used to have the doorbell and it'd be like the man and his mistress and then the girlfriend would come in. I wish that had happened. Or I wish Gail had just said to the girls, like, you know what? Me and, and Auntie Oprah got you. Would you like to leave with us? You don't have to stay here. I have a feeling the girls would have said no. I don't know. Some people have said, they're like, you know, those are grown women. They're, they're, they're making a decision as grown women. I'm like, oh, they've been with him and they've been groomed since they were underage. Who knows what he's doing to those girls? One of the girls, Dominique, she, um, her mom is the one on the documentary that went and got her child. She did an interview with the New Yorker. She's still madly in love with R. Kelly. She said she didn't want him to go to jail. He just needed help. He needed to just be in his studio and make good music. She didn't think that, that what he did rose to the level of crime. She described how he used to beat the shit out of her. He got so mad that he ripped her hair out. But then he'd apologize and say that he lost control and he's so sorry. And he was so apologetic. She genuinely believed him. And then she forgave him. And then things went back to normal until he would beat her again. She got beat a lot. She has two tattoos of R. Kelly, one on her calf, I think, and then another one on her rib cage. She's been gone from R. Kelly for a while now, but you just reading that article, she's still very deep in it. She did say that she had recently started attending therapy and she'd been with him for like nine or 10 years. So I don't expect that she's been gone for less than a year and she would be, I don't want to say back to normal, but she would be healthier, emotionally healthier about that situation. It's really, really sad. That man deserves to be under the jail. Like all those hysteronics he did in front of Gail King, like, sir. I initially saw the clips and Gail's stoic demeanor in the face of foolishment and fuckery. And I was like, you know what? That's unbothered goals. I would love to be that unbothered in the face of nonsense. And then I thought about it a little more. 
And I was like, actually, I wouldn't. Because for Gail to sit there so stoically, so unbothered, it made me wonder, how many times have you been up close and personal with crazy? Because the first time you see somebody act like that, go completely unhinged, you're like, oh, this person must be on drugs. This person is is having a, a mental breakdown. This person is is not safe. I need to put physical distance between myself and this person because they are unpredictable and I don't know what they are going to do next. I've never seen anyone act like that before. Gail done seen that shit so many times, she didn't even flinch. And a lot of women have. I have. I got to the point where I had the same reaction that Gail did. Like, I remember one time he was standing over me yelling. I was I was sleeping on the couch and I just balled myself up and pulled the covers over my head and just laid there waiting it out. And then he stood over me for like another good two or three minutes, like calling me everything but a child of God until like I wasn't giving him a response. And maybe he just realized like I'm sitting up here yelling at someone who's hiding under a sheet. He wasn't sober at the time if it makes the story any more logical. So that Gail reaction, like I've, I actually can be that level of unbothered, but I don't want to be never again. Cause really what that is, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, what's the word? It's a way to diffuse a situation, but it's also like it's self-preservation. It's really actually kind of sad. The more that I think about it, the Michael Jackson documentary, I don't really know what to make of it. I I lean more towards believing the young men. I guess they're kind of grown men. I don't call them young men. They're in their 30s. But I, I leaned more towards I lean more towards believing the men that they were abused. Even though they flip-flopped on their stories. Even though Michael Jackson is not here to defend himself. Because some of the details that they gave with evidence, something ain't right. I'm not saying they're telling the entire truth. They may be padding. They may be adding some extra to to be salacious. But like in the documentary, like they were talking about how like Michael Jackson would come to the house and sleep with their kids or, or sending all those faxes sitting on the phone for hours, talking to an eight or nine-year-old, 10-year-old little boy. What's that about? Something ain't right. Sleeping in the bed with the kids or like the mom, she said they, they, they went to visit Michael Jackson. They came from Australia and they went to visit Michael Jackson and they left and went to the Grand Canyon and then left Michael Jackson and the kid at the house together. They didn't take the kid on the family trip. Something ain't right. And you could be like, oh, well, Michael Jackson was different. He was unique. Y'all saying that because he made good music and had great videos. Because any other black man who's like in his mid-30s talking about, yeah, I sleep in the bed with eight-year-old kids and there ain't none of them my kids. People going to be like, oh, no, sir, you're nasty. You're a pedophile. Get away from them goddamn children. Nobody said that about Michael Jackson. He could talk in that little voice, that fake little voice all he want. That's not his real voice. I don't know. I do know something wrong happened with those kids and that his behavior with children was inappropriate. And I don't know if all the details they gave about, I don't even like recalling that. I talked about Michael Jackson when this, the documentary first debuted at Sundance and a couple articles had been written about it. 
I listed the details and I just felt nasty saying them out loud because we're talking about a grown man and small children. I felt gross hearing it, watching the documentary. I felt absolutely gross. And I was like, I'm disgusted by this. I was like, somewhere there's a pedophile who's probably titillated listening to these details. This is gross. The guys do have credibility issues, though. They, they can't be overlooked. Like, I heard their explanations. And, you know, when Michael Jackson said, if we're ever found out that our lives are ruined and that you didn't want to, you know, publicly admit that you were you were raped. I get that. But it's still like you wanted me to believe you when you said no. Now you want me to believe you when you say yes. I don't know what to make of it all. But I do know some inappropriate shit happened. That sleeping in the bed thing. Like, you just can't justify that. That whole, oh, he's weird. He's different. He ain't that weird. He ain't that different. To make that issue okay. And these parents selling their damn kids. R. Kelly said something about that, too. He was like, what what y'all think about these parents selling their kids to me? I'm like, sir, are you on national television with cameras rolling? Admitting to sex trafficking? And you do realize that it's not like you sold a car. Like, I put the title in your name. I gave you money. Now the title's yours. That's not really how it works with humans. You can't just sell somebody to somebody else. Like, that's sex trafficking and, and slavery, both of which are illegal. On a lighter note, only in complexion. Well, not in comparison to Michael Jackson. So, this Khloe Kardashian, Jordan Woods situation. Khloe's child's father chloe's in her mid-30s he's in his mid-20s i think he's 26 and tristan and then the little girl jordan who he kissed he was at a party with her she had her legs over him they flirted and there was at least a kiss she says nothing went beyond that it becomes public knowledge chloe kardashian flips out goes on twitter and six her millions of followers after this young girl and accuses her of breaking up her family. Were y'all a family? I mean, I know y'all had a kid together, but were y'all even like together together? Then she's like, oh, you broke up my family. And I'm like, he cheated on you before. You stayed. Now he's cheating on you again. Like, that's on him. That's absolutely on him. You know, Chloe used to be my favorite Kardashian, but she got caught up along the way. She was all right for a while. But then she started getting the surgeries and the hair dye and all that other stuff. And she just, she lost her way. But Chloe, she wanted a whole bunch of sympathy. And I'm like, sis, you didn't have no sympathy when you met Tristan. And the girl he was with was what, seven months pregnant? You didn't care? Now you want us to care. When you hooked up with French and he was dealing with Trina. That was supposed to be your, your home girl, your family's home girl. Okay. You ain't had no sympathy. Now you want us to give you sympathy and go after some 21-year-old girl? Girl, bad. And then people were like, well, how are you going to blame the little girl, but you're not going to say anything about him? And she was like, well, he's the father of my child, and we're dealing with it privately. Okay, then deal with all of it privately. Because the little girl didn't owe you nothing. Him, the father of your child, who's cheated on you multiple times, he owed you something. He didn't give that to you. Take your ish up with him. That's not on that girl. I ain't saying the girl was right, but I'm saying trying to sick all those people, your millions of followers after that 21-year-old, that wasn't the right thing to do. Trying to hold the other woman publicly accountable, but you don't want to hold the man who you got a baby with accountable publicly. Girl, I hate when women do that. You got anger for obvious reasons because you got cheated on and embarrassed, 
but you don't want to place the anger at the right person because really you don't want to break up with your relationship. You you mad and you got to take it out on somebody. So you're going to take it out on the other woman because you can't take it out on your man the way you want to because then it's really over, over. As if it wasn't over, over when he was cheating. The sign that he don't want to be in a relationship or he wants to be with someone else is that he's off being with someone else. It's not rocket science. But Jada, her red table talk, that platform she got, she made sure little Jordan was okay. And I call her little Jordan because she's 21 years old. Jada had Jordan come on red table talk and essentially was like, you know, a checkmate to the Kardashians. Like, y'all gone after a lot of people. Amber, she could defend herself. She was a grown woman. China, well, China got y'all asses good with that baby with Rob. Like, if it was a TV show, I would say it's excellent writing. As, as life being lived out is actually kind of trifling. But that was, she hit them with a good money shot with that. You can only go so far after her because she's the mother of your brother's kid. Her kid is your niece. That's a family matter now. Yeah. But the Smith got Jordan on the show and was basically, and not even basically, was like, she is one of ours. You have a platform. We have a platform. Our platform is equally large and three times as respectable. So you're not taking this one down to leave her for roadkill. Absolutely not. And you see Chloe backed up real quick. On second thought, Tristan is to blame for the breakup of our family. She said she was disappointed in Jordan, but she took that blame off her right fast and real quick. As she should have. She never should have said that shit to begin with. I should have kept it all a private matter, but I guess you got to get the ratings up for the next season. It's a really unfortunate way to live. If that was in the top five of my life's worst choices. <sighs> so reality TV is, is hard on the psyche. Very, very hard on the psyche. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. People call me all the time like, oh, I got a call from a production company and they want me to do. And I'm like, if they want you to be an expert, if it's genuinely about like the business of what you do, okay. But just you as the focal point and what's going on in your life, run. I know a couple people who do it. None of them are sane. It took me a while to be sane afterward. I think I'm still probably in recovery from that. Lauren Hill has a line about paying the demands of bad decisions. Paid, overpaid, in debt, paying for that shit. So, yeah. Last but not least, we have to discuss the college cheating scandal. People are all up in arms, like shocked, shocked about this. The degree to which these families cheated it's crazy to me, but the idea of people cheating or scamming their way into universities, psh, standard. Like the idea that we're going to Photoshop pictures and pretend that our children played sports that they've never picked up a ball for in their life. Like the one kid, they were like, oh, the kid does crew. They're like, the school has no crew team, huh? Oh, a kid plays basketball. The kid is 6'1", but in fact, the kid is 5'5". Five five. That's that's a lot. That's extreme. And the amount of money. People are like, well, why would they pay all that money? That's more than it actually costs to go to the university. At a certain level, college is not about education. It's about access. It's about the right social groups, right circles, right connections. There's a reason they were doing all that for Stanford and say, not the University of Maryland. It's a good school, but it's not prestigious. Like to say that, oh, my kid goes to University of Maryland. It doesn't carry the same weight as saying that, oh, my kid went to Harvard or my kid went to Stanford. If anything about the whole process confused me, 
there are so many ways that are culturally accepted in which rich people secure their class and their connections and their circles. And it starts with where you send your kid to kindergarten. Elementary school is a feeder into the junior high school, which is a feeder into the good high school, which is a feeder into the ultimate college, which is a feeder into the ultimate grad school, which is a feeder into whatever industry that you want to be in. Like, that's the whole point. But it starts like the second your kid is born, really. You're supposed to be training to get into this college from like day one. Y'all didn't do that? Or did you do it? And your kid was just still too dumb to get in. I went to prep school. We started training for, and I switched schools between seventh and eighth grade because the school I was in wasn't training us for SATs. They taught us Latin in eighth grade, like basic words in Latin, so that we knew the the root of the words we encountered. We saw a word on the SAT that we didn't know. We could rely on our Latin skills, because Latin is the base of English, but we could rely on Latin to give us a better likelihood of figuring out the correct meaning of the word. That's crazy in retrospect, but that's all I knew. That's what we did. Same thing with math. Like everything that we did was geared toward getting a good score on our SATs. Like that's what we were drilled for from like eighth grade until I graduated. My English professors, Standard five-paragraph essay. We had to do it over and over and over and over to prepare for that. I want to say it's two two essays you had to write for the SATs, but we prepared for them for like five years. I was at one of those schools that had a 100% college acceptance rate, and it wasn't no BS schools. Like I went to Maryland, and I was kind of like, the really, Maryland? But there were reasons for that. I was 16 when I graduated from high school. My parents didn't want me to go out of state. So the idea was that I would go to Maryland and if I wanted to transfer once I turned 18, I could, or I could just stay at Maryland. And it was a given that I was going to grad school. So I would go to Maryland and get really, really, really good grades and then get into a really, really good grad school. I went to NYU for grad school. There, there was a strategy behind that. But yeah, but that, that, that's, that's what we drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled for. And I really, in retrospect, I don't think my SAT score was that great. I wasn't really that great a student in in high school. I didn't really, I don't know, apply myself until college. But college was also super easy because I'd been doing pretty much college-level work most of my high school career. College didn't really become challenging until senior year. And that was only because of the amount of work that I had to do. But I tell you all that to say is in addition to sending your kids to schools that exclusively prepare them for the SATs and to get them into college. We still had counselors come in and tell us individually how to play to our strengths to help us look better on a college essay. It was mandatory at our school that we did 100 hours of community service before second semester senior year so that we would be able to put community service on our college applications because it matters. We weren't required to play sports, but we were all encouraged to play a sport. Mind you, I went to a prep school that was not very competitive. 
like say like a Damatha or Gonzaga or or McNamara, we weren't competitive like that at all. But we were all encouraged to play sports if for no other reason than to put it on a college application. And this was like in ninth grade. And then I think taking a PSAT was mandatory. So you're not just going to go take the SAT drive. In addition to like all this training that we'd done for the SAT, everyone and their mother went and got their kid a tutor. I was in SAT training every Saturday for at least four or five hours for at least three months. You have people look over your college essays or you pay them to write them. I actually did write my essays. Those are like the standard basic things that people do to get their kids into a school. There's again, of course, if your parents went to XYZ really great school, then you are more like just like a sorority. If your grades are like halfway decent, you're more likely to be admitted to XYZ great school. If your parents give, you know, a shit ton of money, a donation to to XYZ school, you're more likely to be admitted to XYZ school. I just couldn't figure out like why none of these parents just went like the standard route. You had all the money and had access to the best of the best, but you were too lazy or too cheap on the front end to make that investment. So now you do this dumb shit and become like the laughing stock of America. I don't ever remember being in school and someone implying that I was there as an affirmative action case. But I know that that's like an assumption people make for a lot of black folks or people of color on campus. Like, oh, you got here and you took somebody else's spot. Remember that little dumb redhead girl who didn't get into her dream school and she said she didn't get in. It went all the way to Supreme Court. But she said she didn't get in because a black person took her spot. And at the time that it was happening, I remember people being like, so you never thought to like sue any of like the legacy kids. You went after like the black and the brown kids when you should have been going after stupid, rich white kids. But I feel bad for every kid who ever was like, oh, you're only here because of affirmative action. You should have been saying that shit to these them dumb, rich white kids whose parents were bribing their way into school. I mean, we knew they existed. We just didn't have like a name or a good story to go along with it. Now we do. So if you're a kid in college or your kid's on their way to college come September, you arm your kid with some information in case somebody come at them sideways. Like, no, no, I'm not the problem. You go talk to Becky. Becky's the problem, not me. I think we've covered everything that happened in the last two weeks. Anything of note. Next week's podcast, I can't promise you it's going to be on time. I'm going to keep it 3,000 with you. I am... Moving to LA, I've I've signed a lease. I've put down a deposit. I've sent the cashier's check for the first month's rent. I'm, I'm moving at the beginning of April, and I'm super super excited about it. Um, I've been in DC far too long. I love this city and it's home, but it's not for me to work and thrive in. I tell you that so you know that I am in the middle of a cross country move, and I'm trying to like you know tie up loose ends here. I also want to go to New York. I never got a chance to say goodbye to my friends. When I left New York, I left very abruptly, but I would like to have an official goodbye. Pulling all that together is a bit of a challenge. I will do this as often as I possibly can. At the time that I started this podcast, I got hit with some really bad news and I had decided not to move to LA, but then I changed my mind because I can. And once I am settled in L.A., we will be back on our usual schedule. And I thank you in advance for your patience and your understanding as I try to 
reconstruct my life. It's past time. So thank you as always for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And if you did, please leave me a comment or five stars. And if you did not, then leave me no stars and no comments. And we can try again next week for an episode that you find more enjoyable. So in the meantime, we'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Deal.